All right, let's go ahead and start up again. Uh, we're going to start with that question on the bottom of the handout. Uh, I suppose this is what, session five? And we're going to ask two questions, and I think we'll, we'll try to get through both of them. The first one is, why do we not pray? Asking a kind of negative question, which I, I think assumes something that's a pretty safe assumption, which is we don't pray, and if we do, we probably don't pray maybe as much as we want to or as we ought. So I think there's a safe assumption there, so we're trying to address some of the negative components. And then that other question, which is, why pray if God is sovereign? So try to hit up both of those questions in the next 20 minutes or so. <laughs> um, I hesitate to say the time because every time I do that, it just never works out. So uh, the first uh, on that list of why do we not pray, you'll, you'll notice it's just listed right there, um, maybe different reasons. And if you have a specific reason that you think people don't pray, we can, we can dialogue about that as well. I just kind of brainstorm these. So the first one I think is a reason we don't pray is busyness. So we're, we're just frankly, we would say, you know, I wish I could pray more. I'm just too busy to pray. Or I'm too busy to pray as often as I want or as regularly as I want. And so the question is, how would you address that to your own heart? And how would you address that if you're discipling someone and this is what they say? I don't pray as much because I'm too busy. I think there's something on the back end of that, uh, that and we're going to try to hit two in one here. On the back of the list, right from the one from the end, it says there's no plan. Right? There's another reason we don't pray. And I think these two are just like the twin cousins of each other. If we're too busy, what we admit is that we just didn't plan to do it in the first place. Because while we live busy lives, we still find the ability to schedule time to meet up with people and grab dinner. We still schedule time, for example, to show up to work. We still plan for you know minutes of time for travel. We plan events with others. We plan hangouts. We plan coffee. We plan a lot of things. And yet... We don't plan certain things, and when we don't plan certain things, what we're kind of saying is, if that doesn't get done, it's because I was too busy because of the other things I had scheduled to do, to do it. And I think there's a real danger in that. So the, the, the reason we don't pray when we say we're too busy, I think there's a really easy way to address that, which is to say, okay, let's say you are too busy. Draw up your schedule. Just, just make a list of all the things you do in a week. If you use Google Calendar, do that. And just look at this thing and say, okay, where am I going to start slotting in moments of prayer? And that doesn't make prayer less spiritual. I think there's a common concern that, you know, prayer needs to be spontaneous in order for it to be real and authentic. And that's just not true. The Lord's Prayer is a well-crafted summary statement of theology on how we pray. That doesn't make it less spiritual on how to pray. God thought carefully about this before Jesus said it. And Jesus probably thought long and hard about how he was going to arrange this prayer. And so when we pray, it's safe and good and right for us to slot in scheduled time in our day to pray. And most of us, that, that doesn't need to be a long time. To make an improvement, to move the needle marginally, is just maybe five or ten minutes longer than we already do. And so let, let's say you maybe make a resolve to pray more, and you just schedule a 15 or a 20 minute time slot in the morning to do that. And you say, nothing else during this time, I'll have my coffee made, I'll have showered, I'll have gotten ready. That's my time to pray. And then you just open that up for praying through scripture and all that stuff. We'll talk about how to pray later, but the too busy can be addressed with planning because we're all good at planning. I know that because you're all physically here right now and all of you are dressed like adults. So <laughs> you can plan things. You, you've proven to me that you can do that. So therefore, you're not too busy to do other kinds of essential things in your life. So second reason we don't pray is shame. We're ashamed to pray and so we don't. Now, when I refer to shame, I think I'm mostly referring to, although not exclusively, but mostly referring to the shame we feel after we sin. And so that's why we don't pray. 
We skip time with the Lord and time in prayer because we feel shame from sins that we've committed or recently committed or sins that we're reminded of maybe. And that leads us to not praying. Or perhaps we feel ashamed for the fact that we don't pray normally and so we're just going to continue the streak in that direction. And I want to look at a passage in scripture that addresses the shame component in prayer. And it's actually Genesis chapter 3. If you didn't know, shame is not something that is in your own head. It is actually something that is part of the fall. And God has an interesting way of dealing with shame. So I'm just going to read starting in verse 4 of the text of Genesis chapter 3. The serpent is tempting Eve and the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So he presents the temptation in front of her. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Verse 7, And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sew fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to them and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. This section of interaction between God, Adam, Eve, and the serpent leads us to conclude a few things about the nature of sin. The first piece that it leads us to understand is that the sin that Adam and Eve commit leads to them having this severed relationship with God, which primarily manifests itself in them desiring to no longer spend time with him. So the, the, the immediate consequence of sin is they, God seeks them out. He goes into the garden. He walks as he normally does, and they hide themselves from him because of shame, because of guilt, because of this weight of sin that they carry now. And when God asks them, why did they do that? Adam says, because I was aware of my nakedness. I was aware of my sinfulness. So his reason for hiding from God was because he was sinful, because he was naked, because he was shameful. And what God, what's, what's funny about that is God is the only one who can deal with Adam's sin problem. God is the only one who can fix Eve's sin problem. And both of them think the best course of action is to hide from God because of the shame that they feel. And what does God do to to alleviate the shame enough so they'll come out and talk to him? It happens in verse, sorry, verse, uh, I think it's 11 of the text. Maybe I'm wrong on this. I've now lost my place in it. God has to kill an animal and uh, and he has to provide a sacrifice for the, the man and the woman to come before him and to, you know, talk with him now. And part of how they manifest their shame is they sew fig leaves together to cover their own nakedness. And then when God sees them and he calls them out and he speaks with them and he then converses with them, you'll see that he has to make a sacrifice on their behalf. It happens in uh, verse 20. I was scanning. I didn't read far enough. That's why. It says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So God deals with their shame problem, deals with their sin problem by a sacrifice. That's what he does. 
And so how does that relate to how we understand our shame and our sin in the New Testament? The first thing, as it regards to prayerlessness, sin is an impedance to prayer. Sin is a thing that stops us from being able to pray. And we see that as early as the fall. It stops Adam and Eve from being able to commune with God, to pray, to converse with him. And the way to overcome that shame is not to hide ourselves and wait for the guilt to go away and then to try to approach God. The way to do it is to go to an appropriate sacrifice and to deal with it. And the appropriate sacrifice, as we framed at the very beginning of our time together, is 1 John 5, 14. We have confidence to approach the throne, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. That is the sacrifice we look to to deal with our shame. So why do we not pray? If shame is your answer, you need to be reminded of the gospel and the cross. And whether you need to remind yourself of that or someone else needs to remind you of that or you need to remind someone else of that, that is what deals with your shame. Nothing else can deal with the shame component of sin. And so shame is not an excuse not to pray. It's simply an observation of we don't pray because we feel shame. But prayer is the very thing we need to actually come out of that shame cycle. Either intercessory prayer on our behalf or we need to directly go to God, which we can now do in the new covenant because of Christ's sacrifice. So another reason we don't pray is uh, spiritually dry. I think this kind of comes in with uh, something I mentioned earlier, which is we don't pray because we have a habit of not praying or we have a habit of not engaging richly in God's word, not thinking deep thoughts about God. So when we come to prayer, we don't have much to say towards God. Now, there's much to be said about that. The first is, well, if you're spiritually dry, the only way to get spiritually, uh, spiritually uh, filled up is to go to the source of living water. So if you're spiritually dry, you have to go to God to have him fill you up. You can't just conjure that up outside of yourself. But the other thing to note uh, is if you're spiritually dry and the, and the reality is you don't think big thoughts about God, you don't really know what to pray, well, we're going to deal with that uh, in a moment on the, on the how to pray part of it. But the real thing to say is scripture has abundant evidence of how to pray, what we should say when we pray, what to think when we pray, and we have an everlasting and infinite God who sits behind that text that it points to. And so there's no reason for us not to engage in prayer because if you're dry, you need to soak yourself in the word. You need to meditate on scripture and that will drive you to a prayer life. <coughs> um, what is this? The fourth reason, apathy. Uh, we don't pray because we're apathetic. Proverbs 30 was the text that dealt with this. Proverbs 30, 8 and 9, where the man says, don't give me so much that I would forget that you exist and forget to acknowledge you. And I think that's a real danger uh, in the West because we just really have too much stuff. We just really have way more than we need. And we have so much so that we would say, the whole prayer for give us our day, our daily bread isn't you know, that relevant to us because I have a, a pantry full of backup supplies if everything were to shut down right now. So do we really view ourselves as needing God or are we apathetic towards the petitions in the prayers? That, that could deal with our, our sin as well. Sometimes we could see our sin is not really a big problem, so we don't see prayer as a really big need. And that's a, that's a manifestation of our apathy. And that will lead us to not pray because we don't thank God for things because we don't see it as him giving it to us. We don't ask God for things because we don't see that we need anything. And all that is a manifestation of apathy. And the reality is the, the way to deal with the, the lived experience of apathy is to have a better understanding of theology. The only way to overcome apathy is to, is to have a real kind of theology and understanding about God about what he says about his word. And a great place to start is to just go to scripture and read all the passages where it talks about the sinfulness of man. And that will drive you to pray, at least for your sin. And then maybe out of communing for God uh, with your sin problem, 
you'll be able to now commune with God and ask him for not only uh, keeping you for, or forgiving you from your old sins, but also keeping you from new ones. And now you're at least, you know, a good quarter of the way done with the Lord's prayer. And you'll just start building that up over time. But the real thing that scripture does is it breaks us down in order to drive us to God. And so if you're apathetic, you need to be broken down by scripture. So again, the answer to that, just like spiritually dry, saturate yourself in thoughts about scripture and you will, it will drive you away from apathy. The opposite is true. If you saturate yourself, not in scripture, but in the world, what you're going to become is apathetic. If you become happy with where you're at and happy with where America is and happy with what the culture is doing, you're going to become apathetic because you don't see any room for improvement because the engine is working, everything's turning. We don't need God to keep going anymore. So apathy is, is a direct reflection of our worldview of scripture versus our worldview being informed by the culture. The next item on that list is bitterness. Um, it could be that you've experienced great hurt and suffering in your life and you've experienced a great chastisement at the hand of God and you're bitter about that. And if that's you, just know that Hannah prays out of her anxiousness and her weakness and her vexation. Samuel prays when he is in a broken place. Nehemiah prays when he's in a broken place. The bitterness is a negative kind of response to pain and suffering. Prayer is the correct response. Prayer is a means of processing our emotions, not just into emptiness, but processing our emotions with a God who hears, who is good, who is loving, who is gentle, and who reveals himself as personal, which I think is the most important part of that list. He just gives us his presence and says, access me whenever you need as a way to process your emotions. And so prayer is an antidote to bitterness, but bitterness will drive us away from prayer. Because if we're bitter, we can milk and fixate on that as opposed to fixating on prayer and fixating on God. And then the, the last one on this list of why don't we pray I think that's a pretty good summary of where most of us might be, um, is being untaught on prayer. And what I mean by that is not that we don't know what prayer is, but that we don't know what to pray, how to pray, how frequently to pray, things like that. And so we're going to address that part of the question, why do we not pray, with the very last session together, um, which is, as you'll see titled there, how do we pray? So that one we're going to address later. So I'm going to pin that for now. Now the second question, um, which we our time is fleeting on, <laughs> says, why pray if God is sovereign? So if you have asked that question in your mind or in your heart, I will try with my best efforts to address that, although I'm probably not going to be able to resolve all of it. So, The first text to look at is Daniel 9. <clears throat> so we're going to do one Old Testament, one New Testament, and then I've already shown you another Old Testament text that deals with it, but we'll cover that as well. But the first one to go to is Daniel chapter 9. Uh, the book of Daniel deals with uh, the people of Israel while they're in exile. So they're not doing well as a nation. They're being oppressed by a wicked uh, governmental system. And what you see in Daniel chapter 9, the first verse, is this moment of deliverance for Daniel. So if you remember how the book of Jeremiah ends, uh, or sorry, not, that, not how it ends, but in the middle of the book of Jeremiah, there's this prophecy, Jeremiah 29. Uh, you might know a famous verse from that. But Jeremiah 29 deals with the fact that Israel is going to be sold into captivity in, for 70 years. And at the end of 70 years, God has faithfully promised through his prophet, Jeremiah, that he's going to deliver them out of captivity. And then in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel is studying this prophecy. And it says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 1, In the first year of Darius, the son of Azirus, a decent, by, de by descent Amid, who was a king 
who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books, which refers to the prophets, the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. So Daniel studying the prophets, he studies this prophecy, he sees 70 years, this, this whole thing is going to end. And what's interesting about that is the sure word of God, the sure prophecy of what's going to take place, drives Daniel to do this in verse 3. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done what is wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke your name to our kings, to our princes, to our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness. But to us, open shame at this day. To the men of Judah, to its inhabitants, to Jerusalem, and to all Israel, but those who are near, and those who are, or both those who are near and both those who are far away. In all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings and to our princes, to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belongs mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us. Because we have sinned against him, he has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heavens, there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. And as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore, the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all of the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself to this day, we have sinned. We have done wickedly. That is Jer uh, sorry, Daniel's whole reflection on this, just petitioning God. And you'll notice a lot of confession, a lot of thanksgiving, a lot of characterization of God and his righteousness. And I want to continue there in verse, nine, uh, verse 16. It says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers in Jerusalem and for your people, they've become a byword for all those who are around us. Now therefore, now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for our own sake. My God, because of your city and your people who are called by your name. So this whole section of text in Daniel chapter 9 I hope you're picking up ideas that come out of it. Namely, that we've seen all the components of prayer that we've talked about thus far. But the thing that leads Daniel to this prayer, this very deep, theologically rich, 
uh, confident in God kind of prayer is the prompting that God will surely do what he said at the end of 70 years, which was to deliver the people from this affliction. And so what God has sovereignly said he's going to do, Daniel takes under his own prayer and prays that it will happen. And so Daniel's root and ground for the prayer is not because he thinks it won't happen, so he needs to change God's mind on the subject, but because he knows that it will happen, and so he goes to God in prayer about it. And I think that's important for us to know. The biblical authors never seem to have an issue with the fact that God is totally sovereign, and yet man is invited into that to pray. In fact, most of them see it as a motivation to pray. We've already seen that in the Old Testament in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where David goes to God in prayer because God has promised that he will establish his throne. I think that's really important for us to understand. Sovereignty and prayer are not opposite ideas. If you have a bad understanding of theology, and by bad I might mean incomplete, then you will think that sovereignty and prayer are somehow polar opposite ideas. That prayer is changing God's mind. Sovereignty means God's mind is made up. So therefore, if sovereignty is established, prayer is not. But that is just not what scripture teaches us about prayer. So that is a theological idea about prayer, but not a biblical one. The second text I want to look at to deal with sovereignty and prayer is Romans 9 and Romans 10. So if you flip with me there, don't worry, I won't read all of Romans 9. I read a good chunk of Daniel 9, which was really good, but I mean, it's better for me to read it out loud than for me to add any commentary to it. So let's go to Romans 9 first, and then we're going to read a little bit, and then we'll skip ahead to Romans 10. So I want to start in verse uh, 7 of Romans chapter 9. Paul is dealing with the sovereign election of God and how that is not a problem for God's justice. And he says this, And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise that are counted as his offspring. For what is this promise that was said? About this time next year I will return and Sarah will have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah has conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of by him who calls, she was told that the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. And what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that my power might be shown in you and that my name might be proclaimed in the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. This is Paul dealing with the theology of sovereign election. And if you look at what Paul does in response to that, look at Romans 10 verse 1. Remember Paul has just laid out God declares election, he saves people sovereignly, not by human will, not by human exertion. And Paul's response is not what we would expect. Verse 10, or sorry, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witnesses that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's own righteousness. For Christ is the end of which the law and righteousness to everyone who believes. So Paul's response to declaring sovereignty of God over salvation is to say he prays for the people of Israel that they might be saved. 
Now, if you're, if you're listening, you, would, you could just easily say to Paul, well, Paul, if you understood your own theology, you would say, God's already going to do it no matter by human will, human exertion. He's already going to do it, so why are you praying? And Paul doesn't see a problem with that. He says, therefore, my heart's desire and prayer for God is that they may be saved. And I think that's an important thing for us to understand because Paul, the author of Romans 9, sees no problem with God's sovereignty over salvation and his burden to pray for people to be saved. He petitions God on behalf of this people that he refers to, and he prays for them that they might be saved. And that's, I think, a pretty significant point about God's sovereignty and our prayer lives. Because sovereignty and prayer in Scripture are never, never put at odds with one another. And really, you never see this addressed in the early church. You don't see this addressed in the Middle Ages. Where you see this coming up is after the Protestant Reformation, after the, uh, the understanding uh, of a more rich and deeper understanding of justification that happens only on God's part and not on our own part. And then you see the questions raised, well, if God is sovereign over salvation, then what's the point of prayer? What's the point of evangelism? There's a myriad of questions that follow suit in that. Why live my life? Am I responsible for my own sin? But with focus on prayer, prayer and our responsibility to do so and our obedience to pray is, if you like, the means through which God does his sovereign decrees. The the best way to put this is we pray because it's obedient, but we also pray because God ordains what's going to happen and how it's going to happen. And how it's going to happen, according to his word, is as we pray, it's going to happen. So what we've been invited to as Christians is to engage in God's saving work through our prayer and to pray because prayer effectually does things, but not because prayer is changing God's mind. Or you can ask the question, well, what if I don't pray? Or what if I uh, stop praying? Does that mean less people will be saved? Or what if I pray more? Does that mean more people will be saved? No, you're going to pray the exact amount that God always ordained you to pray. But if you start thinking about it too hard, what you're trying to do is what Adam and Eve tried to do in their sin, which is try to put themselves in the place of God and imagine with his mind how things would unfold. And that is the very sin that they fall into. So we are not supposed to do that. Scripture tells us that the secret things belong to the Lord, but the things that have been revealed, those belong to us. And what's been revealed in Scripture is that we ought to pray and that God is sovereign over things. And then we're supposed to leave the secret parts of that to God and just trust that he is good and he's working it out. Because when Job has questions about God's sovereignty and his suffering, God simply reveals himself to Job and Job says, sorry, that was above my pay grade. Okay, so we have to understand where we're at in the totem pole of life. We're a creature and we deal with a sovereign creator who's been sustaining the universe since before we were born and will do so long after we go into glory. And so this is not a problem for him at all. 